Good morning. morning. Oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. So I have had the joy, because my parents attend Pulpit Rock, of hearing all of the sermons in this series, which means I have heard Jonathan repeatedly slander the pickle in the Christmas tree. I have heard Susie defend it. And so I was sort of racking my brain trying to think of something weird my family does at Christmas. And the best thing that I could come up with is unfortunately not something that weird, um, but if you were to come to my parents' house around Christmas time, you would not see kind of a normal decorated for Christmas house with maybe like a few well-placed nativity scenes. You would see dozens of nativity scenes. You would see them everywhere in any little nook or corner where my mom can put something, there is a nativity scene. And they're beautiful. She has them from all of these different countries, most of them from countries that someone in my family went and visited and brought it back. And they're a beautiful picture of the diversity of the church, the fact that in all of these different cultures, this story has incarnated. And to be honest, most of these nativity scenes, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus look more like they probably actually did than most of our nativity scenes here in the US. But I have to admit that I have sort of a gripe with all nativity scenes. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. I have some pictures here of some stereotypical nativity scenes. Um, Kind of a focus on Mary, (laughs) because one of my gripes with nativity scenes is this pose, the Mary pose, which is like kneeling and her hands are clasped and there's light. I like light from Jesus, that's good. But there's kind of an assumption that happens with nativity scenes. As we've talked about in this whole series, they become so familiar, we're so comfortable with them, we're so used to them, that sometimes actually we can take what we see in the nativity scene and we can place it into scripture when it wasn't actually there. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is this depiction of Mary. She's sweet, she's mild, she's meek. And then there's this picture of Mary, which might be a little startling if you've never seen it before. Not only are there some words here that seem really intense until you realize we're about to read them from the Bible, still intense, but they're in the Bible. And Mary's got her fist raised, she's got her foot on a skull and a snake, some Genesis 3 imagery there. And I can tell you, if you've seen this image before and it doesn't startle you, I can tell you from personal experience that it does actually startle people. And the reason I know this is because I walk a trail around Duke's campus almost every day. I'm usually wearing a t-shirt. And I can always tell about a mile into my walk if I'm wearing a t-shirt that has this image on it, because I have a couple t-shirts with this image on it. Because after a little while, I'll start getting lots of strange looks from people. (laughs) They look a little afraid. Sometimes they're squinting to like see what's on it. Because this image does not look like what we normally associate with Mary. The Episcopal priest and a really fabulous writer, Fleming Rutledge, says that most of us at Christmas time just want to see a pretty girl with a beautiful baby. We want sentimental, we want sweet. It ticks a lot of boxes, right? There's animals and children, the cutest, most adorable things. And yet this image is probably more representative of who Mary actually was, especially how Mary is described in scripture. So we're reading from Luke 1 today, from the most extensive account of Mary and her life, especially at this point in her life. We're going to read about Mary's visit from Gabriel, her response to this visitor, her faithful yes, but also this radical, prophetic, and really theologically rich song of hers. Now, before we get into it, I just have to note, Mary is kind of tricky for us as Protestants. (laughs) Sometimes we get a little freaked out about talking about Mary too much because we recognize that in the history of the church, we have made some mistakes in how we've talked about Mary. And out of a fear of seeming Catholic, we end up just avoiding Mary. 
minimizing her, ignoring her. And it's a real cost to us theologically. Not only because Mary is the mother of Jesus, she plays this crucial role in the history of salvation, but we also miss this beautiful song of hers when we ignore or when we minimize Mary or when we think of Mary only the way we did in those other pictures and not this Mary. So before we get into Mary's song, we're gonna get some of the background and I'm gonna start in Luke 1 verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now, I have to admit to you, as a theology nerd, there are so many things I want to tell you about this passage that I don't have time for. But really quickly, I just want to note one thing about the way this story begins. Now, Luke is the historian, right? Of all the gospel writers, he says in the beginning, he is going to give us an orderly account of the events that he has gained from listening to all these eyewitnesses, people like Mary, by the way. And so he begins earlier than where we read in verse five, the way a historian would normally begin. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. This begins the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth that you all heard last week. It is a good beginning to kind of set the stage politically. Right? This is who the leader is. This is who the ruler is. This is how stories are normally told, right? By who's in charge, who's the big man. Zachariah and Elizabeth have very little to do with that, but Luke wants to set the scene historically. And I really am tempted to get into some details about who Herod is and what's happening with the Jewish leaders and the political connotations in the rest of this chapter, but I won't because I don't have time. And also because Luke himself sort of snaps me back from this. If you remember from what we just read in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Stories are regularly situated by the rise and fall of powerful men, but the story of the coming of the incarnate Son of God is situated by the number of months that this lowly woman has been pregnant. This is our first indication that this is not a normal story. <laughs> the rules are being rewritten. The way of the world as it has always been is about to shift. And one way we know that is that instead of reminding us who is in charge politically, Luke tells us Elizabeth has been pregnant for six months. There's also something strange about the way Mary is introduced. Again, we're so familiar with this story, we might miss it. But if you were Mary and you heard how Luke described you, you might have some qualms with it. Before we hear Mary's name, we first learn that she is a virgin. She's a young, unmarried woman. Then we learn that she is pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Then we learn why Joseph is so significant. He is a descendant of David. And only after all of those details do we learn Mary's name. 
She's first identified by all these people that she's related to, or about to be related to, and by her status as a young, unmarried woman. Mary is in a stage not unlike our own at Advent. She is waiting. She's waiting as a pretty lowly peasant girl by all of our historical imaginings. That's kind of what we've settled on. She's probably young and probably not very well off. She's waiting to finally be given the social status of a married woman. She's waiting to be accepted into this family, into Joseph's family. She's waiting to be given the status of being in David's line, this important line. She's waiting, and then Gabriel swoops in and totally changes her status by none of those normal human means. Her status doesn't change because of who she's married to. Her status doesn't change because of who her family is. Her status doesn't change because she's a married woman. Her status changes because she has a new role in God's family. God completely sidesteps all the normal human ways of doing things, which we will continue to see. So what does Mary do after her incredible experience with Gabriel, which again, we could talk about forever. I mean, it's just the wildest thing you can imagine. She, by faith, agrees to God's plan for her wild life, and then what does she do next? She goes to visit Elizabeth. Now, there could be a lot of reasons that she does this. A lot of people have said she's kind of checking out what Gabriel said, right? Gabriel said Elizabeth is pregnant, she should go see for herself. And yet, we've already learned that Mary's response to Gabriel is different than Zechariah's response, right? He's looking for proof. She doesn't really seem to be looking for proof. So why does she go visit Elizabeth? It could be that she's just, she's pregnant, she's a young girl, she's looking for someone else who's pregnant to talk to, she's excited Elizabeth is pregnant and wants to spend time with her. But I like to imagine that Mary went to go see Elizabeth because at this strange moment in all of human history, there happened to be no one else on the whole planet Earth that could maybe a little bit understand what Mary was going through. I mean, can you imagine holding inside yourself, for Mary quite literally, the news that the Messiah was coming and no one will understand. I mean, I can imagine she was ready to burst with the news. And so she goes and visits Elizabeth, starting in verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's not pass over that. Filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. This turning point in all of world history the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ changes everything. The long-awaited eruption of everything normal in the world, the fulfillment of centuries of promises, is confirmed in this moment by the kicking of a child in the womb of a pregnant woman. I don't think we really get the significance here. One of the things we love about Christmas, as I've said, is the sweet baby and the beautiful mother, and it's sentimental and it's nice, but we do not grapple with the fact that in a world ruled by force and wealth, theirs and ours, in a community where men's voices mattered most, definitely then and often in ours, this monumental moment of history occurs between two pregnant women and their unborn children. No one else really knows what's going on besides them. And we'll see in a moment, they're about to proclaim some pretty radical things. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Mary is literally bearing the word of God in her body. They're about to talk about all of these amazing things God is going to do. This is a wild baby shower they are having. 
We often call this song I'm about to read Mary's response to Elizabeth's really strong, incredible confirmation of what's happening. We often call it the Magnificat. We call it this, if it's confusing or strange, it's just good to note. We call it this because in Latin, the first word that comes up is glorified, and in Latin, that's Magnificat. And so people have sung it in Latin, and for centuries, Christians' only access to scripture was in Latin, and so that's how they would have understood it. But it's not really fair to call this a song, to be honest, especially when it's a woman singing it. We tend to have visions of Mary strumming a guitar and singing about her feelings, and that is not what's about to happen, okay? Mary's song, like Zechariah's song, is a wild one. And Mary's song in particular is a little bit more like a battle cry than like a love song or a hymn. And Mary's song in particular exists in a long line of songs from godly women who were prophets. Mary is about to give us a prophecy. Things like Miriam's song of deliverance in Exodus 15, Deborah's victory hymn in Judges 5, Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. If you have some time this week to read your Bible, I would really recommend reading 1 Samuel 1 and Luke 1. There's some incredible parallels there. The Magnificat itself is in the aorist in Greek, nerd moment for a minute. It's functioning in the equivalent of the prophetic perfect in Hebrew. We have all of the contextual reasons and the grammatical reasons to understand that what Mary is about to say to us is a prophecy. She is describing the future work of God in Christ with the certainty of a past event. So the things we're about to read sound like she's saying they've already been done, and in some sense they already have. God keeps doing the same things over and over again. But she's also describing what God will do with the coming of the child in her womb with the certainty of a past event. She is so certain that God will be faithful. It is as if he has already done it. So let's start in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Do you get why I called it a battle cry? <laughs> there is nothing meek or mild or sweet about this song. It begins with some really lovely, sweet things, right? Mary recognizes God has done something individually to her. He has honored her. He has given her this unique place in his family. And yet she very quickly moves on to this radical statement of how God is overturning the whole world. One of my favorite things about this song, before I really get into it, is that it does not give us the option of thinking that the only thing Jesus came to do is save our individual hearts and souls. Mary starts that way, and it is important, but she moves very quickly to say, the whole world is turning upside down. The rules are being rewritten, and it will have some serious effects on the lives of all people. I also call this a battle cry because there's some really fun little facts about this. Uh, again, dainty little girly song that is not so dainty or girly. Public recitation of this song was banned in Guatemala in the 1980s because it was considered politically radical. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and a theologian who was executed by the Nazis, called the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. This is no sweet little girl song. 
There are so many places that we could go in the Magnificat, but I want to focus this Advent season on what the Magnificat and Mary's life tell us about what it means to be faithful Christians in this in-between time. As Christians, we are always doing what God's people have always done, rehearsing our waiting. Advent is a time for us to rehearse the waiting of God's people for the Messiah the first time so that we can do our waiting well as we await the second coming of Christ. And for most of the history of the church, Mary has not just been a model for women, though we have often kind of distorted her that way, right? We'll say Mary is sweet and submissive and feminine, and so women should also be as Mary is. Historically, that's not how we've talked about Mary. We've talked about Mary as a role model for all Christians, a model of a faithful believer who knew God's story well enough to recognize when it was happening to her, who believed God enough to tell the story of his future redemption, and who was obedient to take her part in this grand cosmic revolutionary story. And so those are the things I think we can model for Mary that we're gonna see in a moment, that we can know God's story, that we must know God's story in order to participate, that we need to believe God's story, and that when we know and when we believe, we have the option to participate. So first, Mary knew God's story. I don't know if it's just nerdy students like me, theology nerds, but every time around this year, there's this massive fight that breaks out on social media about the song, Mary, Did You Know? If you've never heard the song, that's surprising, but also, you know, it's, it's asking, you know, did Mary know? Mary, did you know your son will walk on water? Mary, did you know that he will save our sons and daughters? And for theology students on Twitter, this is like our Super Bowl. <laughs> like pop culture has made a theological question relevant and we're so excited about it. And if you love this song, I have no beef with it. You can still listen to it, it's fine. And yet I think the definitive answer to the question, Mary, did you know, is yes. Mary knew a lot of stuff. Mary probably knew in a certain sense more than we really know. Based on what Gabriel says to her, based on what she says to Elizabeth, we know that Mary knew a lot of stuff. When Gabriel says to her that her son will be son of the Most High, and that the Lord would give her son the throne of his father David, and that the son she had would be called the Son of God, Mary knew what those words meant, what those titles meant. She knew the story of her people Israel well enough to know when Gabriel said those things, she knew the part her son would play in it. She knew who God is. She recognized that God cares for his people, especially the most vulnerable and lowly, that he saw her and acted. She knows the stories of deliverance in the Old Testament. She knows the people being brought out of Egypt across the Red Sea into the Promised Land. So she can say he has performed mighty deeds with his arm because she knows that he has and scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts because she can think of examples of when he did that. She knows how he guided Israel into victory against nations that they should not have had victory in. And she also knows of the times when he brought down their own rulers who were corrupt, worshiping idols, mistreating people. So she can truthfully say he has brought down rulers from their thrones. She knows who God is. She knows the promises and the prophets of provision and protection for the vulnerable. So she can say he has filled the hungry with good things. And she knows how harshly scripture speaks against those who hoard wealth and exploit other people. So she can say has sent the rich away empty. She knows the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so she can truthfully say he has helped his servant Israel because she recognizes that her son is the fulfillment of these prophecies. The Magnificat proclaims God's salvation, as I said. It will not let us get away, from thinking, away with thinking Jesus came only to save 
our individual hearts and souls. Mary's song reminds us of these great things God has done for his people and the promises of what he will continue to do, material things that upset the way of the world. Mary's knowledge of this grand story is instruction for us. We need to know the story. Secondly, Mary believed God's story. I don't think it's an accident that Luke arranges the story in this way. He goes from Elizabeth saying to Mary, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her, and then jumps straight into all of these things that Mary believes, her proclamation of belief. Mary not only knew God's story enough to recognize it, she knew those titles, she knew the story of the line of David. As a theology student, I can tell you there are plenty of people who know the Bible really well and do not believe it. And unfortunately, there are way more people who know the Bible really well, say that they believe it, and would risk nothing to follow it. Mary believed it. This belief was no small thing for Mary. She was taking on a terrifying job. Again, Mary meek and mild is not the same thing as the Mary in the Bible, because when Mary is told that she will have this pregnancy out of nowhere as an unwed teenager... She knows how dangerous this is for her. She knows that at the very least, she will lose her engagement. The life that she had planned will be completely upset. At worst, she'll face total social exclusion. It could even be dangerous for her. And she believes so strongly that God really does and has been mindful of the humble state of his servant that she can have the courage to say yes to what he asks of her. She believes so deeply in this story and in God's care for her that she had the courage to say yes and she had the courage to believe God about his reign over all creation in the face of the Roman Empire, which was also no small thing. The rich and the rulers that she talks about, her and Elizabeth would have had actual people in mind when she said that. These are not abstract ideas, right? There are rulers oppressing the Jewish people. There are rich exploiting the poor. When she says poor and marginalized, she's thinking of actual people. They're not abstract. They are real forces and powers. I mean, she is saying something completely ridiculous. A lowly Jewish peasant girl is shaking her fist at the massive power of the Roman Empire, and more than that, all of the powers of darkness and evil in the world, and saying, my son will defeat you. She is crazy. <laughs> or she believes something that we struggle to believe, truly. She sounds out of her mind, but the rest of Luke will testify to how right she is. People get healed. They get raised from the dead. The religious and political leaders miss the whole message of the Messiah while the poor and the marginalized hang on to Jesus for dear life. We will often say of the early Christians that when they said Jesus is Lord, they were also saying Caesar is not. They had a yes to Jesus as Lord, and that had implications for everything else in their lives. When Jonathan preached a few weeks ago about Herod and the Magi, when the Magi come to Herod and say what they say, and he responds, he responds appropriately. <laughs> God bringing rulers down from their thrones means something different when you are the ruler. So Mary knew God's story. Mary believed God's story. And lastly, Mary participated in God's story. Mary represents the people of God's yes to God. After decades, centuries of failure to say yes to God's plan, failure to stop worshiping idols, failure to treat people well, failure to live in the community that testifies to who God is and who this people is. Mary, by the grace of God, not by her own inherent sinfulness, but by the grace of God, embodies the yes that the people of God were always intended to give to God. And yet Mary also proclaims the no of God. The no that God has proclaimed over injustice, oppression, abuse of power, and the know that the people of God must also say in order to be faithful to him. 
Mary is submissive, yes, as all humans should be to God, but that submission requires refusing to submit to the ways of the world, to the loud voices that say power and wealth will always win, to the shrug of the shoulders that says, this is how things always have been and always will be. Mary not only submits herself to God's purpose, she willingly takes on her role in that purpose, and that role includes a yes, and it includes a really terrifying no. Mary's song is subversive and radical and powerful, and people like me who desperately want to see God's people serve the poor and seek justice love a song like this. And yet there is a truth that is none too exciting for any of us, which is one that Mary would learn as well, that her no as her yes was costly. She would learn, like all of Jesus' followers, that the path to justice led Jesus right to the cross. This was a path of suffering. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple after his birth, Simeon, an elderly man who's been promised by God he would see the Messiah before his death, says to Mary, a sword will pierce your heart as well. Her no and her yes were costly. As I said, Advent is really about the second coming. It's about how we rehearse Israel's waiting in our own waiting for the second coming. We, as the people of God, are always characterized by waiting. So just as Mary participated, both by seeking justice, by caring for the poor, but also by waiting for God to do what he had said we would do, our participation will also include both God's redemptive work now, seeking glimpses of that coming kingdom of God, and also waiting in the suffering of knowing that things are not all right yet. When Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who has believed, she sounds very similar to something Jesus will say a few chapters later in Luke 11. A woman will say to Jesus to praise him, blessed is the woman who birthed you. And Jesus will say in response, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey. It could almost sound like Jesus is sort of refuting this blessing of his mother, right? Oh, no, my mother's not blessed. These other people are. And yet, I think actually what Jesus is doing, it doesn't say this quite explicitly, but I think Jesus is looking in the face of a culturally accepted ideal of what made a woman valuable and saying, actually, it wasn't just that she gave birth to me. It was that she heard the word of the Lord and obeyed. There's something about Christmas that can be really difficult for a lot of us, especially women. We talk a lot about pregnancy. We talk a lot about motherhood. We talk a lot about babies. And I think there's something really incredible and important when we think about Mary as a model for us it's not just Mary saying yes to giving birth to the Son of God, which is an incredible, amazing thing. It is Mary saying yes to what God specifically asked her to do. In the face of this cultural expectation of what made a woman valuable, Jesus says, rather, those, rather blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and obey. And I like to think that when he said this, he had some of the women disciples who had left everything behind and followed him to the cross nearby listening. I had a professor in seminary who would often say that God always works through people. He always mediates his blessings and grace through his creation. It felt like an overstatement at the time, but it really isn't. God chose to work through Israel. God chose to work through Mary, and God chooses to work through us. And this is ultimately what Mary teaches us. God requires a yes and a no from all of us. A yes to his plan and a no to the powers and principalities. I can think of some great examples throughout church history of this that I'm just gonna tell you really quickly. If they sound interesting, you should Google them um, and use good sources and maybe read a book or something like that. The first is Perpetua and Felicity. 
These are two early Christian martyrs. I think of them at Christmas time because they were both young women and one of them had just recently given birth to a child. They were martyred for their faith because they knew that a yes to Jesus and the empire they were in meant a no to their very lives. I think of the confessing church in Germany during the Nazi regime. They were a group of Christians who, in opposition to the established regular church, actually said no to the Nazis. A yes to the revelation of God in Christ required a no to the government powers that claimed to be the word of God instead. They wrote in the Barman Declaration, which was an important declaration of what they believed and why they weren't in support of the government. They wrote that Jesus Christ is the only Lord. No other authority can compete with him. A yes to Jesus is a no to those authorities that would take his place. I think of the witness of enslaved Christians during the Civil War, throughout all of our history, really, a witness of black Christians during the civil rights movement, those who knew that a yes to God meant a no to injustice and also knew that a no to injustice means getting your hands dirty. None of those people had to go looking for a no. Their yes came with one. It was inherent. Which means the question for us is what is our yes, but also what is our no? Maybe it's how we spend our money. A yes to stewarding God's gifts to us well means a no to selfish acquisition, to hoarding what we have, to believing that I have earned it so I can choose how to use it. A yes to caring for the poor and to giving generously probably means a no to some comforts in your life. It means a no to clenching your fists. Maybe it's how we treat people who are different from us. A yes to setting a wide table and welcoming people who might break our dishes or bring strange food is a no to the comfort of our bubble and people who are like us. It's a no to building walls around what we have to protect it. Maybe it's about how we live in our communities. A yes to seeking a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God in our families, in our communities, in our church will require some really difficult no's. It might be the no of speaking up against those who would deny the image of God and other people. It might be the no of seeing injustice and using the resources available to you to fight it. It might be the no of learning that something is broken in your community and doing something about it. The good news of the gospel is that what Mary said God would do in the Magnificat is true. He will make all things right again. He will bind up everything broken. He will wipe every tear from every eye. We can work in this world with our yeses and with our noes from a place of joy and love and grace, not from a place of desperately needing to fix everything. Mary's song is an invitation to participation, not an invitation to become the Lord of fixing everything ourselves. In this particular season of waiting, of rehearsing waiting, and the coming season of celebration and Christmas, these are good seasons to work from joy with our yeses and with our noes and to join Mary in proclaiming God's story and living into it with our words and with our actions. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for speaking through unexpected people. I thank you for giving Mary the gift of knowing who you are so intimately, and also for giving us the gift of being able to model that knowing and believing in our own lives. Thank you for giving us your word, which is just an unbelievable gift. And thank you for giving us opportunities that we do not deserve to participate in your good work in the world. I pray that you would spark in each of our minds something specific, some act of yes and no that would make our participation real in this season and that you wouldn't let us go until we've done it. It's in your name we pray, amen.